guns and money. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Conduct Detrimental, the sports law podcast. I'm your co-host, Daniel Wallach, the founder of Wallach Legal LLC and a legal analyst for The Athletic. Joining me, as always, is a sports litigator extraordinaire, Dan Lust. So, Dan, how have you been doing this week? How's the new job going? New job is good. You know, Dan, I find it so funny. In the world uh, of sports law, you never know what you're going to wake up to or, or go to sleep to. And the, and the last thing, Dan, that you know, I truthfully expected after Major League Baseball got through all of the COVID obstacles, that there would be a positive test that came up during the World Series and a and a very big player had to be taken out. So we can, Dan, you and I can have a lot of fun with different stories online. And I know, Dan, during the game last night, you posted that Kevin Cash's Wikipedia page had been changed after he pulled Blake Snell early, you know, and I was having fun, you know, with, with Kershaw and Betts. But this is a, you know, all of a sudden in the middle of the World Series, they're pretty serious stories. So, you know, I, th- I think that's uh, something that definitely caught my attention and why, you know, definitely wanted to talk to you today about it. Yeah, well, it's been a really interesting year in professional sports, uh, truncated seasons, which ultimately led to short seasons that crowned champions that were not altogether unexpected to be the champions. I think the Dodgers, the Tampa Bay Lightning, and of course, the Los Angeles Lakers, which lends some credence to the legitimacy of the season. There was some question, and I think I had raised the question early on as to whether you can truly equate the champions of this kind of COVID-shortened season with champions that have to endure a full regular season, road trips, seven-game series back and forth between their home venue and the road venue. And I think the results bear out that there's no question these are legitimate champions. And we can try to compare seasons, but I don't think anyone looks to the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers with an asterisk simply because there were two, you know, half seasons played that didn't add up to 162 games. So I thought it was a really interesting final outcome before we get to, you know, the COVID issue that, you know, the the, the teams that won were pretty much among the, the favorites to have won. So it does really, really boost the credibility of each of these leagues and how they, you know, at least tried their best to create a, a competitive, albeit shortened season. Yeah, I, I I definitely hear you. I will say, I guess on a on a fun note, Dan. I don't know if you saw. I got a, a quick shout out from Barstool this week. Between you and I, I think Dan, I think we're circling the the radars on Barstool. I got the uh, AFC shout out. You got the Massachusetts shout out. I, I think we're getting there. You know, just as they say, a playoff series doesn't truly begin until the home team loses a game. I don't think an interaction with Barstool means anything for either of us unless it's El Presidente or Big Cat. We're, and getting, we're getting there. Yeah. yeah. You, got, you got Erica Nardini and I got KFC. Those are those are right in the, the Mount Rushmore of, of Barstool. Yeah, I've been, I've been retweeted by Dave Portnoy, but I've never interacted with them. And I think I have an in with the company anyway. You know, when I grew up in in East Meadow, Long Island, uh, went to Hofstra Law School, I lived maybe 20, 30 years in East Meadow. And my family's favorite restaurant in the neighborhood was a restaurant called Borelli's, which is like this landmark institution going back to the 1950s. If you go to the Nassau Coliseum for any Islander games or concerts, you eat at Borelli's. And the owner's grandson, Frank Borelli Jr., is now like an emerging personality on Barstool Sports. So we do have, um, between us, we're, we're sort of several, uh, you know, several peripheries away. You know, so you know what they say, Barstool. 
You yeah. know what they say? No one circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills. But when it comes to this podcast, no one circles Barstool like the dance. Dan, you ready to jump right into our, our rundown for today? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, it won't be the usual guest episode, but I think we have a few topics yeah. uh, that, are, that, that are certainly worthy of, of consideration. So let's, let's go to it. Okay, so we'll keep this episode pretty tight. We have four topics on the docket. Number one, we're going to talk, you know, the, the COVID ramifications of Justin Turner. We'll get into that. And then uh, number two, a story, Dan, that I know that you are very close to, the New York Mets potential holdup in the sale due to Bill de Blasio, the New York City mayor, trying to trigger a very obscure clause in the city field lease, which definitely gets our attention. And number three, I know there's a sports betting update. I won't spoil it, but there's a uh, an update in a big wire act case. And number four, which, Dan, we spent a lot of time talking about this over the summer and really, you know, over the last maybe a year. But Antonio Brown finally has found a home, but his legal cases are not resolved. So we, we should definitely unpack that. So with that being said, let's go to number one. Just a, a quick background. Uh, and then, Dan, I'll toss it over to you. Justin Turner, a former New York Met, was with the Dodgers for the past couple of years. He's a, you know, hits in the heart of their lineup. He's their third baseman. The reason it's a sports law story today, we spend so much time talking about COVID, different protocols, you know, Major League Baseball strict compliance with these protocols, how a positive test, you know, had to keep you out for a certain amount of time. But more importantly, Dan, into the heart of this story, that the test results had to come back prior to games in order to avoid a situation where a player who tested positive was actually playing in the game. So what happened here during the second inning of last night's game six of the World Series, which the Dodgers won, and Dan, quick shout out to this hat I have. I have a, a Giants blue and black hat on, but well, no, a little rep- representing Clayton Kershaw, one of my favorite players. It's okay to root for a player on the other team if he's Clayton Kershaw. I think that's that's legal. But you know, in, importantly for the story, in the second inning of last night's game, Major League Baseball hears word that in Monday's testing of Justin Turner, those results didn't come back until during game two of the following day, and those results came back as inconclusive for COVID. So what Major League Baseball did after they heard in, in the second inning, they said, well, we need an expedited run of his test results from today that he took before the game. So those came back in the seventh inning of the game in which he was pulled. So, you know, the, it doesn't really end there in terms of just kind of weird situations and decisions. Turner was pulled off the field, taken out of the lineup and told to stay in the locker room. But within a couple minutes, Dan, Turner's on the field taking pictures without a mask, hugging people, shaking hands. And the players on his team said that Turner's a part of the team. We want him to be a part of the celebration. But that being said, I mean, at least I haven't heard in the past couple of days, there's no cure of COVID that, that is curing someone in 15 minutes. So by all means, I, I think there is at least a number of bizarre decisions of baseball's part. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this, the Major League Baseball got through the season with, with a lot of you know issues surrounding the testing and the protocols. But this is really symptomatic of the larger debate uh, that's going on in society where I think, A, we're letting our guard down. And our political leaders are sending mixed messages. So what's taking place on the field, I mean, putting aside Major League Baseball's handling of the testing issue, just the the notion that Justin Turner is pulled from the game because he's tested positive for COVID-19, and then he, he, he doesn't practice social distancing or, or, you know, quarantining himself. He actually goes out onto the field, potentially infecting other players and other players' families and other people that they come into contact with. This is just, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of celebrating the championship. And Justin Turner has a compelling story, basically non-tendered by the New York Mets seven years ago. And he's made an incredible, uh, you know, second stage of his career. He's one of the core players on the Dodgers. 
But this just this is just beyond the pale. But it's not just about Justin Turner. This is happening happening at political rallies when we go outside our, our condominiums or our, our homes and we engage in the public. There is something less than consistency. There's something significantly less than consistency in how people approach the real life and death issue of COVID nineteen. Because I think we've been letting our guard down during a resurgence, and what this represents is a is a real shortfall or deficiency. It not only Major League Baseball's protocols, but their application and, and, and how they're implemented and the lack of accountability from the top down. The team should never have allowed this to happen. And in my opinion, you know, I know I know they're going to be having a parade and celebrating the championship, but this is a serious issue that I think should face some disciplinary action at the team level, the executive level. And even the player, and I understand Justin Turner's exuberance and desire to share the moment with his teammates. It's a lo- it's been a long time coming. I get that, but that has to be outweighed by the public health considerations. I'll go one step further, Dan. I mean, I had a lot of fun making fun of Rob Manfred last night. Who, Dan? I don't know if you caught that. I'm going to. I don't think it's a stretch to say that either Rob Manfred was under some type of substances last night. He was definitely slurring his words. I think objectively. I don't know what was going on, but you know, I, I I will say this. You know, if we're not going to make accus- accusations that he's you know drunk or whatnot, which I don't really. No, think. God, no, 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 not Rob. Rob Manfred's kind of a, stra- a straight straight arrow type. His problem I, I is he's an attorney right. and and comes across as an attorney too often. Well, all, but all I can say is last night, I think objectively, the internet was having a lot of fun. He was definitely affected by something and, and, and his speech wasn't normal. So the only, you know, the conclusion that, that the, we'll say the Twitterverse or social media is that Rob Manfred realized that he dodged a massive, massive bullet last night. Had Justin Turner, had the Dodgers not won, right? We can have a whole conversation, Dan, I'm sure about Blake Snell staying in the game and the Rays winning. Justin Turner was in the lock, in the clubhouse for eight innings with COVID playing baseball, right? You know, the, the situation that we never should have had. But in terms of Dan of accountability, right? Like, let's say the Rays won. What would they have done for game seven? Do they just quarantine everyone for three weeks and then they play the game? You know, there, there's some issues there. But I think, Dan, on a major league baseball level, if you now we're finding out the when these tests came in. So the Monday, the test on Monday, Right. The, I don't, I'm not sure when they took the test on Monday, but that was, you know, the day before game six. Those results didn't come back until after game six had started. So then you kind of ask, OK, wh- why did that happen? Right. Why didn't those test results come back sooner? And then the second question on top of that, Dan, the test results they took that day on Tuesday, those results only came back for Justin Turner because they expedited them. And those only came in the eighth inning. So. I mean, there's no there's no other conclusion as to say that the Dodgers, Major League Baseball, the Rays, they played that game without knowing what the test results are, were from that particular day. So I think it's not just the Dodgers at fault here. I think it's a fundamental flaw on, on all of Major League Baseball at a very high level. I think, Dan, and to your point, they very much took their, their foot off the pedal. I mean, just because you're in yeah. game six of the World Series, it's a deciding game. Does it mean that you could just stop following COVID protocol? And obviously the season's over. Obviously the season's not in threat, but I can't for the life of me understand how that how that happened in the biggest moment of, of the World Series. Yeah, I mean, you look at the, compare the difference between the leagues that played in a bubble versus, you know, football and baseball, where you've had these, you know, multiple positive tests, which have led to either canceled games or canceled practices. They're now going to be maybe suspensions or fines. 
uh, levied at the team level in the National Football League it really does suggest that I, th- I think playing in your home ballpark and, and trying to have some you know semblance of or some resemblance to past seasons really does create a significantly heightened risk. And I think basketball and hockey, hockey have shown us the way to do it. Unfortunately, football and baseball don't do not lend themselves as neatly to a bubble environment given the logistics of the playing surface and the availability of surfaces like that that are not nearly as fungible as just putting together a basketball court and every gold's gym has a full court basketball court, but not necessarily a, an official uh, NFL length football field. So I don't know how they're going to do it during uh, 2021, but I, I think a lot of introspection and, you know, I, I just don't know. I, I think we, we, we understand that there will be uh, a next season, but I think Major League Baseball has to take a, a hard look at how they want to approach this because they did dodge a bullet, but we don't know the end of it yet. No pun intended. They dodged a bullet when the Dodgers won the yeah. World Series. Yeah, and this is this is the second time the Dodgers have taken advantage of a shortened season to win a championship. Nineteen eighty-one, you had the uh, strike-shortened season, which created two halves, with the winners in both halves make qualifying for the playoffs. And now the COVID-shortened season has yielded a, another Los Angeles Dodgers championship season. And there's no question that it's in my mind and it doesn't really, I, I don't think there's any controversy over the crowning of, of this champion, whether it's in 81 or, or, or 2020. Congrats to, to Los Angeles on, on both titles. Just uh, another year of, uh, of sports now in the books. Okay, so the, the second topic we wanted to get to today, a big one, Dan, I know um, you're a very big Mets fan yeah. over there. So just a, a quick background, then Dan, I'll turn it over to you for our, we'll say our, our Mets, Mets legal expert, right? Um, now, as a Yankees fan, I think I have sufficient arm's length and independence away from the Mets to truly be a legal analyst for the New York Mets. Although I have to admit, full disclosure, I started my my fandom as a Mets fan starting in 1970. Of course, I came around one year too late. I couldn't enjoy the 1969 Amazing Mets Championship season. But I was a rabid Mets fan throughout the 1970s until they sold and traded Tom Seaver. Well, Dan, I, I know maybe you're not a Mets fan, but I know you're a Steve Cohn fan. So I know this this story definitely caught your attention. So Steve Cohn purchased a, the agreed purchase price of the Mets is a little over two point four billion. Even though you can agree on a price, there's still because Major League Baseball is a very exclusive club, you need to get approved by certain levels within Major League Baseball. So, you know, just to you know, put a broad brushstroke on it, there are two at least two separate levels that the Major League Baseball ownership has to approve of you. So Steve Cohn has got through the first of those uh, levels, the second level and final level is going to occur on November 17th. In the interim, there is a bizarre clause in the City Field lease. So the New York City, because City Field, the Met Stadium was built on New York City grounds, the city had uh, wanted some say over, uh, I guess, some conditions in the lease. So one of those was if the Mets are ever to be sold, that the city and the mayor would have an ability to veto the sale if, if the sale of the Mets was done to uh, what they called a prohibited person. And under the terms of this lease, it defined a prohibited person as someone that's committed a crime of moral turpitude. So Steve Cohn, as much as we love Steve Cohn, Dan, he does have some skeletons in his closet. The question is whether they're his closet or whether they're his, his company's closet. Steve Cohn very publicly, you know, his company pled guilty to, to different uh, white collar crimes. Steve Cohn never himself pled guilty, but he was kind of indirectly punished and, you know, he had to leave, leave the company as a result. So I don't know if it necessarily it fits in exactly with the definition of a prohibited person, but it's close enough, Dan, where people have said Bill de Blasio might enforce this. And that's the mayor of New York City. And de Blasio has a 30 day window to enforce this block. And when people said, well, Bill, you know, this isn't really directly 
a prohibited person because he never pled guilty to a crime, right? It's not like Dan, like we, we, we talked about on social media, like George Steinbrenner, who was convicted of a crime, who does have a crime under his belt. Steve Cohn does not have that. But Bill de Blasio, for whatever reason, is not ruling out that he's going to enact this clause. He says, we're looking into it. The law department's looking into it. We take these very seriously. So Dan, I mean, let me turn it over to you. What do you think about de Blasio's authority and his likelihood of triggering this clause? Well, first of all, let's hone in on the clause for a second. I mean, prohibited person, it really, it really touches upon two points that I think place Steve Cohen really arguably outside the zone of a prohibited person. It doesn't necessarily have to apply to his convictions, his company. He's a controlled person of his hedge fund. He's the principal owner. And that hedge fund pled guilty to insider trading a few years ago uh, and paid a fine of nearly $2 billion. But just like the, the term conduct detrimental has been used in an elastic way by the National Football League to cover just about everything, when I think of moral turpitude, you could argue that any crime is one of moral turpitude because you violated the law. You're morally and legally ba- you know, bankrupt. Moral turpitude, I think, has a much more specific meaning than, than sort of to, to sweep very broadly and cover everything. And I, I wouldn't think that insider trading charges, while it's a financial crime, I don't think it fits what would generally be thought of as, as a crime of moral turpitude. If you think about the reason for a provision like this, it's to keep like bad people, criminals, away from owning team. And there's a reason for a rule like this and a statutory provision. And say what you want about Steve Cohen's you know, company, and some of the other allegations that may be floating out there about, you know, workplace conditions. I don't know whether they're true or not, but Steve Cohen is a savior to the New York Mets. <laughs> no, that, I'm serious. A, I'm serious. Is that a legal term? There should have been a clause in this lease that would allow <laughs> Mayor de Blasio to uh, reject the current ownership because the current ownership is guilty of a, of a similar crime. The they, crime of, but the current ownership agreed to the lease. Though. Yeah, the crime of egregious mismanagement. This is what Steve Cohen is going to bring to the table. Forget his, his wealth. For, at $14.5 billion dollars, he is already three times wealthier than the second richest owner in Major League Baseball. But let's let's look at the good works that he has promised to, to, to do upon becoming the Mets owner. Met employees have been taking a, a salary uh, reduction of between 5% and 30%. Well, those are going to end because Steve Cohen is taking over. He has also agreed to pay seasonal workers who would otherwise be furloughed and, and, and not working, he has agreed to pay every single one of them a monthly amount. I don't know if it's a $500 or $1,000, but is Mayor de Blasio really going to look the city of New York in the eye and these workers and these employees and object to the deal, maybe to help out his friend Alex Rodriguez and, and Jennifer Lopez, who he may have you know, preferred as the ultimate successor owners of the New York Mets. This would just be a bad thing for Mayor de Blasio to do. I don't think he has a legal leg to stand on. And I'd want to know what city attorney from the law department of New York City is going to advise him to block the sale. I want that person to put his name to it because if Bill de Blasio blocks this sale, good luck trying to find a, a, a safe passageway to his, uh, to his gym in Brooklyn He will be a reviled person in New York much more than he is already reviled in many circles. He's been largely, and I've been through a number of different mayoral administrations going all the way back to John Lindsay. Take my word for it. He is the worst mayor in the history of New York City. You can't get lower than Mayor de Blasio, but exercising this clause and interfering with a sale that Major League Baseball would have approved, 22 out of 29 owners would have approved, 
that provides a much needed economic lifeline to a team that has been operated as a, as a third rate franchise. This is so far beyond the pale that, that, that I would expect cooler heads to prevail and the law department to advise Mayor de Blasio that he doesn't have the right to object to this sale because Steve Cohen is not a prohibited person. This is not a crime involving moral turpitude. If this is, then every crime is one of moral turpitude and, and, and the exception swallows up the rule. So two things, uh, Dan, I, I, I will always tell you when I, when I disagree, I, I don't, I think in terms of moral turpitude, crimes involving fraud are probably closer to moral turpitude than like, I don't know, speeding or anything like that, or reckless driving. That's just my understanding of, or my, my view of the word fraud and, and insider trading, I think is close, but Dan, what, where I do agree with you, at least is how I read the statute, Steve Cohn, right, himself never pled guilty to anything. It was really the company. Obviously, Steve Cohn is a controlling actor in the company, so you can kind of shoo him more, shoo him in that way. Dan, what, what I've been alerted to, not I'm not necessarily Sir Yacht with my per sources, but somebody who has been looking into this situation thinks that the, the brewing legal issue, the one that is maybe explaining why de Blasio is inserting himself in this, it's it maybe a delay tactic because there, there is still a question, Dan, at least as I've been told, as to what will happen with the adjacent surrounding property to City Field. The Wilpons have an ownership in some of those stores and some of those properties. And the question, I think, at least as far as I've been advised, what Steve Cohn purchased is still kind of up in the air. Obviously, he purchased the Mets and he could control the Mets and the employment decisions. But the value of this adjacent property, at least I've been, as someone who, who should be in the know told me, is still kind of up in the air. So maybe that's de Blasio doing a favor for uh, the Wilpons and trying to figure that out. But on a legal level, you know, I, I'm with you, Dan. I don't know what the, the law department is researching. It's either a question, right? You and it, Dan, we can look at this for five minutes and have an idea of whether or not it's enforceable or not. And it's a question of whether or not you just want to act on that and make that decision. De Blasio has been asked, you know, every, probably every day for the last week. Are you going to enforce this? And he goes, I'm not sure yet. I'm going to have it decided. The law department's looking into it. It's obviously, you know, whatever Q rating de Blasio has left is being torpedoed and sent to the gutter because he's, yeah, he's very much holding the Mets hostage, right? I mean, well, yeah, he doesn't have to make decisions for political expediency or to, or to satisfy the crowd. I think it's acceptable for him to say that the law department is reviewing the lease. That is a normal statement that I would have expected any mayor to make because to do otherwise would be to prejudge the situation before you know enough about it to make an informed decision. So, so far, on, he's doing... Maybe on day one, that's a response. But I don't... Day 10, I'm not sure... I don't think that's a valid excuse anymore. You know, I'd like to hear something more definitive out of him. And I agree with you that we've now reached the point where the Steve Cohen train is gathering, you know, sort of irreversible momentum. It seems pretty apparent that he's going to be cleared and approved by so a, a sufficient number of major league owners. There's no reason to delay this and to delay it throws into question Cohen's ownership at a time when baseball is about to enter a critical phase of free agency and basically the off the field business of baseball and to hold up the sale and delay it uh, as we're approaching November, uh, in my view, would be unconscionable. There's no good reason for him to do so. This is the best owner. And the Mets fans are very fortunate here that for the first time in, in the nearly 60-year history of the franchise, they have a well-heeled owner. They have never had one like this. So I think we can put a pin in the Mets conversation, Dan. And let's move on to our third topic. Dan, you, you advised me this one. I, I watch your Twitter feed pretty closely. And in a case that you've been tracking the sports betting level, we've had an unexpected passing of a judge. Maybe you can fill us in on, on, the, on what's going on there. Yeah, it's only the biggest gambling case in the federal courts. It, it has a, it holds in its grasp, in some ways, the future of 
interstate sports betting, it calls into question the legality of all these state-operated lotteries that sell their tickets online or engage in these multi-state lottery pooling of, of, of ticket sales. So the Justice Department has interpreted or reinterpreted the Federal Wire Act, which has always been understood as applying only to the interstate uh, transmission of sports bets. The Justice Department has taken an expansive view of this of this um, federal law and says that it applies to all forms of gambling, internet poker, iGaming, lotteries. It calls into question the legality of all forms of internet gambling. And uh, the New Hampshire lottery, which is uh, one of the first, I think it's the oldest lottery in the United States that's operated by the state for the benefit of public education. The, the lottery in New Hampshire brought a lawsuit against the Department of Justice to vacate that opinion on the basis that it's in contravention of the language and legislative history of the Wire Act. And the New Hampshire Lottery Commission one round one of the federal district court lawsuit, a federal judge in New Hampshire entered judgment in favor of the New Hampshire lottery. So what happens then? The Department of Justice, Bill Barr, takes an appeal of that ruling to the First Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. And several months ago, oral argument was held before a three-judge panel in the First Circuit. We are anxiously awaiting the ruling based on that oral argument and all the briefing that preceded it. And it, honestly, it was considered to be imminent. I've been checking PACER every day. We're in the period right now, several months after the oral argument, where a decision would have been forthcoming or expected. And what happened yesterday, one of the three judges hearing the case, First Circuit Judge uh, Juan Turuella, Juan Turuella uh, passed away. He was the first Puerto Rican or first Hispanic judge to ever serve on the First Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, and the only Hispanic to ever serve on that bench. So it raises the question, what happens now? You know, we have rules in the court system, in the federal rules of civil procedure of what happens when a federal district court dies, what happens when a party dies, what happens when a lawyer becomes incapacitated, but there isn't any specific rule addressing what happens when a federal court of appeals judge passes while the decision that she heard argument on uh, remains pending. And we have, a, we believe it or not, there is a Supreme Court decision from 2019 unsigned that addresses this question and basically holds that if the other two judges, that if the two surviving judges of the three-judge panel are in agreement on the decision, you only need a quorum of judges to rule one way or the other. So on a three-judge panel, a vote of two will carry the day. So if the other two, if the two surviving judges are in agreement, you have a ruling. And the death of Judge Torello does not impact the decision. However, if those if those judges are not of the same view, one believes that the New Hampshire lottery's uh, ruling in their favor should be affirmed, then the other one might, you know, side with a, a reversal of, of, of the lower court opinion. What would happen then is the is the First Circuit would probably have to assign a new panel or maybe just a third judge to break the tie. It might lead to more oral argument. I don't think new briefing, but it dramatically slows the decision-making process and guarantees that this case will remain in abeyance when the next president is sworn in on January 20th, 2021, whether that's President Trump being reelected or Senator Biden or former Vice President Biden winning the election. And for a case that has really dramatic impact or could have a dramatic impact 
on the gaming industry, this is really a, a case that we're all watching. And it's the first time I've been around where a judge died during the pendency of the case. And one of the great lines, and I don't mean to diminish Judge Torello, uh, you know, who's obviously a pioneer for Hispanic judges nationwide, but one of the one of the great lines in this Supreme Court opinion is that federal judges are appointed for life, not eternity. So that's a very apt line. I, you know, I, I think the big takeaway, and, and uh, this will kind of bring us to our fourth topic, people that are that are maybe non-lawyers or outside the legal field always wonder what takes decisions so long to happen, why cases take so long. You know, obviously the, the cases that Dan, that you and I touch upon, Dan, are, are in the sports realm, but judges on their docket have, you know, 99.9% of cases that maybe aren't newsworthy, right, that, they're, that aren't drawing the same type of attention. So this case with the judge passing away in the pendency of the decision, I mean, it's obviously rare, right? Because how many judges die when they're sitting on the bench? Very few, but I mean, it's something, you know, that, that people need to take into account. So Dan, this will bring us to our- Well, they're appointed, well, just one, one final word. They're appointed for life and many of them serve because they're appointed for life, there's no mandatory retirement age. And I, I clerked for a federal judge who was on the bench into his 90s. And that's kind of a common occurrence. And the, you know, the passing of judges while on active duty or even senior status is more common, you know, than, than, than we may appreciate. And because we only weigh in on these issues when they touch upon the sports industry, we're not as familiar with the identity of all these judges until it impacts a case that we're following. You know, we all know most of the nine Supreme Court justices, but very few of us can name, you know, even a third of the judges in any federal circuit court of appeals. Right. So I, I think uh, that's a, a good place to put a pin in that. Obviously, you know, uh, we'll, we'll be monitoring that. And as for our, our last topic, you know, again, Dan and I spent a lot of time talking about the Antonio Brown side. We've dedicated plenty of airtime and breath to Antonio Brown. There hasn't been really a substantive update in his cases in, in some amount of time. There's still been a, a battle back and forth with discovery, but no depositions, anything like that. What has changed, Dan, is that Antonio Brown has signed a new contract. So Antonio Brown with the Pittsburgh Steelers was one of the, you know, definitely on a Hall of Fame track, one of the best wide receivers in all of football. When he signed with the Raiders, still one of the best wide receivers in all of football. When he left the Raiders, you know, in his brief time there, he went to the Patriots, had a big game for the Patriots, caught a touchdown from Tom Brady, and that was never seen for foreseeable for the interim future. Now, Dan, you know, last time we talked about Antonio Brown, I believe, was when I believe he got his suspension. We were talking about how long the suspension was. But in any event, Dan, eight-week suspension. Week nine, he's supposed to suit up for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So I'm just going to read you. I know back in March, Bruce Arians, former coach of Antonio Brown, when he was with Pittsburgh, you know, there's reports that those guys didn't get along there, and it didn't really surprise anybody when Antonio Brown was a free agent back in March, Bruce Arians was very clear, now the head coach of the, of the Tampa Bay Bucks, that there was no room for Antonio Brown, that they were not interested in the Antonio Brown sweepstakes. Fast forward, Dan, that was March. We are now in November. Boy, how winning changes. Winning can change your attitude. And, and now, Dan, you know, week nine, we're looking at Antonio Brown suiting up for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I will just give you a quote from uh, Coach Arians, and I'll turn it over to you. Bucks coach Bruce Arians on the sexual assault allegations against Antonio Brown, quote, let the court system do its job, period. If they're true, he won't be with us. And the only thing I'll add before I turn it over to you, you know, what, what is the obvious statement that Bruce Arians should be saying is something along the lines of, right, innocent until proven guilty. But what Bruce Arians is saying is that if the court system adjudicates this case and determines that Antonio Brown has some guilt or some culpability, then we'll cut him. The problem, Dan, and, and this is why I, I think it's, a, I like the order of our discussion today. The, the wheels of justice spin very slowly. There is no chance and you know what, that this case is resolved before the Super Bowl. So I think this is a little bit of a technicality on, on Bruce Arians' part. What do you think? 
this is the truth that so many civil attorneys know all too well. It's not that the wheels of justice spin slowly, but our cases are not the only ones pending before right. that particular trial court judge. Most, uh, at least in Broward County, where Antonio Brown's civil lawsuit filed against them is pending. Judges have a docket of probably several hundred cases. And, um, you know, the time to go from the filing of a lawsuit to trial sometimes takes, you know, close to two years. And when you throw in a pandemic and all the, you know, issues and complications that are caused by, you know, the, the inability to have in-person depositions and in-person court appearances, there is no chance that Antonio Brown's case will be adjudicated prior to the Super Bowl. But again, I want to I stress he's already served a suspension. He's already been punished for all the items, all the issues that this case touches upon. And you know, what, what the only thing we're going to come to learn is whether, whether a jury believes that it's more likely than not that these things occurred. And that doesn't really change anything. And the NFL, one of the dangers of suspending and disciplining players prior to an adjudication in a court system is what if he wins the trial and a jury finds his accuser's allegations not credible and enters judgment or not liable in favor of Antonio Brown? Then how about, what on earth was he suspended for? But Dan, how about, how about the other way? Let's say they convict him of, of rape and, and the, the details are much gorier than we know. Then I might tell you that eight game suspension is not really that much, right? Like if there's, if someone is accused of rape and convicted of rape, maybe eight games isn't really enough in that context. So I'm, I'm with you, but Dan, like, you know, there, there has to be as much as, you know, I, we're just kind of both playing speculation, but innocent until proven guilty is, you know, is still the standard in the country. Dan, Dan it's a civil case, not yeah. a, not a criminal case. And well, no well, police report has ever been filed. We'll, we'll say that is a hundred percent true, but the burden is still on the plaintiff to prove her allegation. So in, yeah. in that sense, it's not necessarily innocent until proven guilty, but yeah. someone can't be presumed to be culpable for an event before the case really gets its wheels. But yeah, I, I think it's tough for Antonio Brown either, either way. Yeah, but I've been following the case closely, even all these many months after, after his initial suspension, and he's still playing games and playing fast and loose with discovery in the court system. To this day, it doesn't appear as if he's produced so much as a single document in discovery. I was just checking the court docket earlier this week. I saw Antonio Brown's response to a request for production of documents. Every single line item is objected to. Objected to as irrelevant, outside the bounds of discovery. He has been, I would say, his behavior as a, as a litigation party has been very obstructionist. He went a long period of time without even have, having a lawyer representing him, and he's basically thumbed his nose at the court system. So I think this is headed towards a plaintiff's verdict in all likelihood. I mean, he's gone through so many lawyers already, and the, the plaintiff's lawyer, I think, has been persistent throughout. But I don't think the news or what we learn about the case is going to get any worse than what's been alleged in the complaint. Usually, the uh, selling of the story and the allegations are going to be in the complaint. I don't think there'll be any new allegations here. We're now entering the moment of truth when a jury will weigh credibility. I don't think the story changes. I just think that there's some finality and maybe some some sworn testimony under oath, if not in depositions, certainly in a trial setting. And th th those trials are open to the public. So 
I think there will be a fair amount of reporting on what Antonio Brown said or didn't say, but I still am of the belief that this is not going to go to trial, that this should have been settled a long time ago, and maybe it took a contract guarantee like this. If he earns his full guarantee, maybe that gives him a little bit more financial flexibility in which to pony up a reasonable settlement because this case is not getting dismissed and there's too much on the line for him to run the risk of having live testimony boomerang against him. And if it doesn't lead to a suspension, because I don't think the NFL is going to punish him twice for this, it could make him even more unemployable. So he needs to acquit himself not only on the field, but off the field, because if he doesn't, one or the other, you know, this is going to be his last NFL season. You know, father time is undefeated. And at his current age, I don't know if it's 32 or 33, he's already one of the oldest wide receivers in a game where the emphasis at these skill positions is on youth. Yeah, I mean, the, the sad part is that Antonio Brown went from definitely, I think, first ballot Hall of Famer to just punching bag and not not without his own fault. I mean, he, he had definitely a, a number of different issues. So, again, I, I'm sure you and I could go on, which which we have for Antonio Brown. Well, Week. Lesson lesson to be learned here. If you have a good thing going with the Pittsburgh Steelers, don't screw it up. Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown. I am sure that if they could travel back in time to, to 2017, both players would have comported themselves differently. And I am invariably on the side of players in disputes with management and, co- and coaching staff. I tend to see things through the lens of the players, but both players have really, I guess, engaged in self-inflicted harm in torpedoing what likely or what could have been Hall of Fame careers for both of them because of dissatisfaction with all these different issues, whether it was financial compensation or not seeing eye to eye with the quarterback or with the coach. I still can't believe that both players have screwed up their careers so immeasurably when they had such a good thing going probably the most stable organization in the National Football League. I think we can put a pin in Antonio Brown. Dan, uh, I, I think, you know, we're going to have to look forward to see what Antonio Brown does on the field. But, you know, again, the courtroom is still going to really dictate how we uh, view Brown's legacy. So um, with that being said, Dan, before we put this in the books, anything else to add for this week's episode? No, I think it's been a pretty you know non-dramatic week other than, you know, on the field with the, with the World Series. So I think that that provides some, you know, good closure this week in sports law, and hopefully in another week or so, we'll have a decision in the Zion Williamson case and maybe some more fireworks in the area of sports law. And, and I can tell you, it never disappoints. There's always a new story or a new controversy. You know, I'm looking forward to tackling some new material very soon. Dan and I have two, maybe three, live podcasts scheduled to be on various law schools with law students and some attorneys in the near future. But we'll make sure to post the dates, be on the lookout for some dates in November. With that being said, Dan, I think we're ready to put this in the book. So Dan, as always, it can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Wallach Legal. Myself, Dan Lust, at Sports Law Lust, the show, Conduct Detrimental, at Con Detrimental. So for Dan and myself... Don't forget to vote early. Do not mail your ballot in. Drop it off in the, uh, in the, in the, in the basket at the, at the polling center. I think this is the last episode we're going to release before Election Day. So everybody go out to vote, support your candidate, and you know remove any and all doubt by either voting in person or dropping off your mail ballot. I think we're a little bit too late in the game to mail it in, given the recent Supreme Court decisions and all the political gamesmanship that's going on. We'll see you next week, though. Dan, you say it on another episode of Conduct Detrimental, the Sports Law Podcast. We'll be back at it uh, next week with a new episode. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.